Uh, this is a big Sunday for us, a big, big challenge for me being a disciple now, weekend one, because I have to follow up on good teaching that you guys have been hearing from Reagan all weekend. Two, because I know this group was deprived of the normal time that you usually sleep, so you're going to be tempted to do it now. And also for some of you whose normal time to sleep is now, um, I hope I'm going to be on my A game that you'll be listening, you'll be locked in this morning. So let's pray together. Father God, give us ears that, that hear, not just words or ideas or concepts, but God, that hear eternal truth, hear from you. And give us a heart that provides a soft landing place for your word. Fertile ground for your Holy Spirit to work. Or the words of truth to take root and grow up in us. And bring fruit. Father, encourage us, help us, teach us. Show yourself to us today through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You got your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 25. And I will say, as I, as I give this message today, I'm going to intentionally leave you with somewhat of a cliffhanger because this is really sort of the beginning. It's a prelude to Acts chapter 26, which you'll hear next week and the remainder of this conversation. So I'm going to leave you uh, hanging just a little bit in the storyline as we continue this long section of Scripture about Paul's defenses of the gospel. And so everything has been leading up to this, everything from the very beginning, the birth of the church or the, the empowerment of the church, I should say, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls, to the growth of the church, the expansion of the church, and ultimately it's going to go to the highest places on earth. It's going to go all the way to Rome, and Rome will become a new centerpiece of the church. And of course, uh, the heroic figure of the book of Acts is God himself. It's the work of God's Spirit through which nothing else is going to be possible. When we look at Acts, I know sometimes we'll see in, in sort of the parentheses of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, it's really the Acts of God through his own spirit, how he accomplishes accomplishes all these things. And one particular figure emerges that God uses, and that's that's Paul, Paul the Apostle. Uh, For me, he's the most heroic figure in the Bible, apart from Jesus himself. Um, If there's one person that probably inspires me the most, the story, the words, the writing, the ministry, the sacrifice, the, the courage, the strength, it's probably the Apostle Paul. But as I'm teaching through uh, what Paul did, uh, this, these narrative passages, I recognize that Paul doesn't resonate the same with all of us, I suspect. I mean, for some people, you're probably listening to all these conversations that he had and these bold proclamations and his willingness to suffer as he did and to get back up and go again. And for you, Paul is, I mean, he is heroic. For some of us, Paul probably inspires us to greatness. I want to do big things for God. I, I want to have opportunities to, to stand in front of people who are important. I, I, I want people to hear my words and, and my life to have impact. And, and I want God to use me in, in something great. I want to know God like Paul did. I want to be confident like Paul was. I, I want to be fearless like Paul was, useful like Paul was. Or like that encounter that we saw of those demonic false professors of faith who when they tried to do miracles in Jesus name the demons beat them up and they said Paul we know but who are you we want our names to be known in heaven and hell like Paul and for some of us that stirs us up greatly but for others you might be tempted to look at Paul's life and just the greatness of his impact and the usefulness of him and 
and the heroic stature he has and say, what does his life have to do with me? That's, that's not my lot in life. My life looks nothing like that. I labor among diapers and, and dishes, not before congregations and kings. My world is more cubicles and emails, not the frontiers of, of global missions or church planting. And maybe you look back at your life and say your personal mission fields as God has given them have been largely unfruitful. Maybe you're struggling just simply with the weight of illness or struggle, maybe rebellious children, maybe an unhappy marriage, an uncertain future, and you're saying, where does this fit for me? I don't have influence like that. I don't have a voice like that. I don't have opportunities like this. My life is largely unseen, unremarkable. What does God want from me? What does God want from me? And I would say simply this, God wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. I mean, to really know him, not just know things about him, not just gather up information, but to know him so that you can love him and treasure him and enjoy him and ultimately be faithful to him, but not be faithful to him simply as one who's a servant or a soldier, even those, those analogies and metaphors do come into play, but ultimately like, like a spouse. A faithful spouse who just loves and enjoys him. Remember, you're his ambassador. I'm his ambassador. We collectively are his ambassadors. And in this world, in this time, in this place, in the lot in life that God has given you, you'll represent him. You'll make him known. We're ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to God and do that. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. If there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and he ordered Paul to be brought. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to, deserve to die, I do, not, I do not seek to escape death. But there is nothing to their charges against me. No one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Just so you can keep up with the story here, because again, what seems like a passage that you and I might be tempted to kind of fly through in the book of Acts, 
Luke spends a great deal of time in. This is valuable and it's something we need to learn from. The early church would have understood its value perhaps better than the contemporary one would. But I want us to look at this just to keep up the storyline for a moment. A little backstory. How did we go from Felix, who was the Roman procurator or governor, and now there's a new one called Festus, not to be confused with the um, deputy sheriff. This is Felix to Festus. And then we're going to see a new person addressed in just a moment called Agrippa. Then all the way to Caesar, Paul's going to take the appeal. Well, here's a little bit of backstory. It was the spring of 59 when Felix was recalled from Caesarea. Uh, Caesarea, as you can imagine, it's the city of Caesar. It was built there by the sea. It was the ruling place of the Roman governor over the whole province of Judea. After an uprising around 59, Felix was recalled, and only due to the intervention of family that he had in Rome did he not face execution or um, for suicide there. But he's replaced with Festus. Festus has a little higher standing in Rome, comes from a, a more notable family, and Festus takes his place. Now, before Felix left, if he had been a man of good character, he could easily have released Paul. Remember, we've already been through one trial. This is the fourth iteration of Paul's hearings. He could have easily have released him. All those uh, accusations made against him had been defended. There was no ground to them, and yet he kept them in order to somehow curry favor still with the Jews, and also so there'd be no accusation against him that he had mishandled his position. And so, mean to the very last, he leaves Paul in custody. And then Festus takes in. When Festus comes in, his first step is to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not where the Roman governor would have ruled from, but it is the center, of course, of Jewish life. And so he visits with the leaders there. And it's ironic, among all the issues that are swirling in the world, and I won't go into any of the political scene of the, of the, the year 60 or so, but of all the issues that are swirling, I mean, so much conflict in the world, so much division between Jew and Gentile, Roman and, and Hebrew, their primary focus is on Paul. He, he remains for them this idea, remember the word they use, a plague. Plague. The truth that was so penetrating them. And so their whole focus was on, on Paul. And so when he arrives, this is primary issue number one to them. And they say, we want to try him. Now, keep in mind, their motives are impure. They have no desire to put him through any more of these trials that are getting nowhere. They just want the opportunity to get Paul back in their hands. Remember, he's been held in protective custody in Caesarea. They want him marched to Jerusalem where they're going to take him. You remember there were over 40 young, zealous men who had pledged they would not eat or drink until Paul had been killed? Well, they've been holding on to that for two years now, so I don't know how that's working out for them. But that, that desire is, is still there. But instead, Festus throws a wrench in their plans, probably unwittingly, not knowing anything about what their, um, their, their plot is. He decides to try him himself as his first case back in Caesarea. So look at this defense for just a moment. Just a few thoughts in your notes, and I summarize most of this. The Jews had two years of pent-up frustration, and it had not subsided. I mean, imagine holding to this level of bitterness and animosity and angst towards Paul for two whole years. But once again, they make charges they can't prove. Charges that are baseless. Paul gives a summary statement. I've not sinned against Judaism. I've not sinned against the temple. I've not sinned against Rome. I've committed no violations of any laws. I've committed no offense whatsoever. Again, Festus wants to keep him. But Paul, very wisely, 
utilizing all the resources that are at his disposal. Paul in that moment does something that is a, a, a swift and strong political stroke. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. If this trial is going to continue, I have the right to be heard in Rome. I appeal to Caesar. It sort of ties Festus' hands. He knows he has no choice but to do that. Now, Paul, in that moment, is trusting in the Lord. And he's willing to do whatever God required of him at any cost. To go to Caesar could easily mean, and would probably mean for him, death. The Caesar that he is about to appeal to, or that he has appealed to, by the way, is Nero. And before Nero becomes so infamous um, for his horrific leadership and murderous ways, um, he was rather young in his leadership in these days, still under the influence of Seneca, a philosopher of Rome. But it was to Nero that he appeals. He's trusting his life in God's hands. And he knew this is what God had said would happen. Acts 23, verse 11. Remember when the Lord stood by him? And he's in prison. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Always in the back of Paul's mind was this. One way or the other, God has told me I'm going to get to Rome. When he sees an opportunity to get there, he, he seizes on it. And he appeals, and Festus responds. This is an example in Scripture of God's providence. Providence is the means by which God exercises his ability, his right of governance in this world, how God takes his sovereign power and ability and puts it into play. It's God at work in circumstances. It's God working through the decisions, choices of people, both people who belong to him and follow him and people who are opposed to him and enemies of his. It's the hand of God causing it to come to pass, seeing it through. And that's what he's doing with the Apostle Paul here. You know, sometimes you can look at your life and with the benefit of hindsight, you say, how did, how did I get here? And how, how, did I, how did I land here? How did I get in this spot that I'm in? And maybe it's dissatisfying or you feel like you're missing out on something or you're not accomplishing all that you could be accomplishing. You're, you're not doing all you hoped you would ever do. Wondering if you missed a turn somewhere. Wondering if you missed a, a message you should have responded to somewhere. Wondering if you just simply got it wrong. It's encouraging for us. In fact, I would say it's, it's necessary for us. In our comfort and faithfulness to remember that your life situation, like my life situation, is not ultimately a matter of chance and circumstance. God doesn't simply leave us alone. We're not simply just going down the, the current, the river of this life, and it's taking us wherever it will take us. You know, our life situation, while we contribute to it with decisions, good and bad, uh, mistakes and, and failures, if we belong to Him, we can be sure, and Romans 8, 28 tells us, that He's causing everything ultimately to work together for good, for those whom He loves. And where we are right now, even if it's a matter of wrong choices, decisions, we can know that God is putting something in front of us right now that he wants us to be and do. This next right step, this next thing he wants from us. And we can be sure that God's providence doesn't nullify our decisions. We're not puppets here. What we do matters. And scripture is full of statements about what we do and the decisions that we make. And also you look at Paul's life. God's providence doesn't mean that he just waits and sits idly by passively for God to put everything in motion. 
That means you make wise decisions with the information that you have. It means that you're courageous and bold, and you're trying to do the right thing as you understand it right there in front of you, doing your very best in every situation. And yet also knowing that in all of this, there's a hand that's stronger than yours. There's an eye that sees more clearly than yours. There's a plan that's being worked out that's better than yours. And this is the hand of God for us. The Heidelberg Catechism puts God's providence like this. Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So we see this providence of God working. God's plan, the sovereign will, was to get Paul to Rome. But in that, God is working in so many ways. These accusations, this imprisonment, another trial, another governor, and Paul now standing and making this appeal by faith, not knowing what will happen to him there, exactly as the scriptures say, and I want to go to Rome. In all of this, God is working. And again, I say you're not a puppet. That's not how God works, and that's not what providence means. What providence does mean is this, that God, by His own grace, through His own power, for His own purposes, which are for our good, remember, God, by His own grace, is doing this all the time in your life. He's planting thoughts in your mind. He's he's putting desires into your heart. He's strengthening the force of your will towards those things that are for your good and for his glory and this is what God is doing in us and so we say thank you God for leading me thank you God for guiding me thank you God for opening opportunity for me thank you God for working in me and this is what God is doing also that you and I will willingly and wisely choose to follow him choose to honor him choose to obey him we seek that and we trust in that I also want to give you a thought on God's grace here just for a moment. This is a little bit of an aside to the story. And it's it's not really implicit or even explicit in the text. But it's kind of fascinating here that God is giving Paul opportunities of the gospel with many different audiences. Now, the Jews are sort of a constant backdrop. But he's going from ruler to ruler to ruler. Felix is out and Festus is in. And as I said, Festus comes in with a bit more renown than Felix more well-known in Rome, a better family, a royal family. There's, there's heritage and lineage here. And when he steps in, he seems to be a man of, a, of greater character than Felix. But when Festus takes over as pro- procurator, let's say governor, when he steps in as governor there in Judea, he has no idea that this is going to be his last job. In two years, he'll be dead. You see, while God is war- working in Paul's life, and orchestrating the circumstances of his life, and protecting him, and providing for him, and leading him, and guiding him, and strengthening him, and taking care of him, and reassuring him, and comforting him with truth, and message, and promises, while he's working in, and through, and with Paul, he's also working in, and with, and through, and for the sake of all those people that Paul is going to encounter. So you never forget that. This great thing that God is doing in your life isn't just about you, He's also simultaneously, because he's God, working in the lives of all those people around you. And so, just as God is guaranteeing that the gospel is going to get all the way to Rome, on its way it's going to pass through Caesarea, and a man named Festus, who doesn't have that much longer left to live, is going to hear it again and again. Man, that's grace. That's grace. That's God getting the gospel to this man who would not have heard it otherwise. 
God in his providential hand and his goodness towards people in ways we can't even imagine. Felix is out. He's been deposed, removed. Festus is in. And his first encounter is with the Apostle Paul. The, the first thing on his plate is to come across a Christian like Paul. Man, that's grace. And it just reminds us of the weight and, and the seriousness, the opportunities in front of us. You never know whose path you're going to cross, that God is also working in. That it's not by accident, and it's not by circumstance. It's not simply by chance. But maybe God is moving these pieces around, and maybe you and I aren't seeing it as well. But that new person that just came to work at your company, that, that new person that just moved in down the block, uh, that, that new student that just moved into town, what if you're the one that God wants them to encounter? What, what if you're his ambassador that he put them in contact with? Because he knew the gospel's there, and they can meet the gospel there. That's, that's God's grace. Well, Agrippa now enters the conversation. Who was Agrippa? Agrippa was the son of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? Herod the Great, by the way, was not called the Great because he was a great guy, okay? Herod the Great was one of the most uh, demented, demonic, evil men that we see in history. Herod was called the Great simply because he built a lot of great stuff. Herod was a great builder. I mean, you can visit the Holy Lands today and still see all the things or evidence of the things that Herod built. Well, this is the son of Herod the Great. And so when Herod's kingdom ended, it was broken up into parts and his sons and, and things had different parts. You can read about the history of that. Herod Agrippa had a very small part of that. It's growing now in influence, but he's basically a vassal. He's a puppet ruler. He gets to maintain sort of that pomp of ruler and leadership and everything as a king, but he serves at the will and at the pleasure of the Romans. So Agrippa now enters a conversation, verse 13. When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice, his wife, arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I suppose. In other words, there's nothing to it, nothing deserving death. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. By the way, when I said that Paul was sharing the gospel with Festus, I wasn't just assuming so. Every defense of the gospel, every opportunity, Paul was saying, it's really about Jesus. What you believe about Jesus is the most critical thing. If he's dead, dismiss him. If he's alive, submit to him and worship him, for he is God. Simple. It's a simple choice. If he is raised, then he is who he claimed to be. If he's not, he's a nobody. Dispense of the whole thing. Being at a loss on how to investigate the, these questions, I'm not an arbiter of these spiritual things, he said. These are religious questions. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Talk about providence. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Here you go. I know what you're about to hear. Festus' response, tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. 
So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came, and with great pomp, they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. You can just imagine this parade. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he did done nothing deserving death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Makes perfect sense, right? You understand the scenario? I won't elaborate on it. It's pretty clear cut. Festus is in a bit of an awkward spot here. Paul has appealed now to go to Rome, which is his right, but he's going to defend charges of which Festus doesn't really understand, doesn't really agree with. He has no real charges against Paul. So when he gets to Rome and he's to appear before the tribunal of Caesar himself, what's he going to say? This man's been charged with what? What's the charge? And of course, we know the real charge. The real charge is claiming that Jesus is the Son of God who was crucified, buried, resurrected, and coming again. How does this work in a political court? So he calls upon Herod Agrippa. Maybe you understand this. These are your people. This is your religion. These are your laws. Give me something here. Now the beauty of this is this is going to afford Paul another incredible gospel opportunity. Another trial and another gospel opportunity. And that's next week. That's chapter 26. So I want to give you just a few thoughts from this passage. I just want you to think about its implication for you just for a moment, so just track with me quickly. The first one I would encourage you all with is this. Never despair thinking that God has forgotten you. God doesn't know where you are. God doesn't know what your need is or your situation is, or that God's not going to use you. God has no purpose for your life. You know, I don't know exactly because we're not given much narration about Paul's two years in captivity. It's been two years. And really from 24 to 25, that's all we know, two years. Now Paul had much greater level of contentment in the Lord than I think most, if not all of us do. And he had a greater sense of confidence in God and his plans and purposes than most of us do. But yet, two years is two years. Don't despair. God knows where you are. You're not off his map. You're not off his radar. Don't despair that you're Your days aren't useful to him, and he doesn't have a plan and purpose for you. God knows. He knows exactly where you are. The second lesson I would encourage you is revisiting one from last week. One of the things that Paul said as he appeared before Felix was this, the previous governor, I take great pains to have clear conscience before God and men. That's a a theme that just permeates his life. Uh, This is what I do. I'm going to make sure that my conscience is clear before God and man. Because I'm on trial before man now, okay? It's man that I've got to give a defense to. But my life is always on trial before God. It's God ultimately that I have to stand in front of. And while that seems simple, it's really really rather profound and life-changing if you give it enough thought. Yeah, people are always looking at your life and evaluating you. You're always trying to figure out where you stand with people and what level of approval you have or what influence you have whether you're liked or disliked, or what you're going to do in this world. But never forget, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
every one of us. It's, it's God that we have to give an account for. And when he says, I want to have a clear conscience, I want as best I can. This is what he says, I take pains. I will work at this. And when I think of pains, it, it means at least Paul is loving these people enough to take a loss for them. I mean, I, I, tried to, I tried to say that clearly last week, and I hope I did. We'll never reach people that we perceive as our enemies. We'll never be effective at being God's ambassadors if all we do is war with, with people. And we can disagree strongly with what people do or the culture in which we live, but never forget what drove Paul was not animosity, but love. I, I would sacrifice myself, my salvation for them if I could. Loving people enough to suffer loss for their sake. But it also means loving God enough that you would abandon inferior loves for His sake. And when I say inferior loves, there, there's something in each of us. Now, it varies in degree and impact. There's something in each of us that seeks the approval the affection of people. We want to be liked. We don't want enemies. We, we want people to speak well of us and enjoy our company and, and want us to be around. We, we want to be accepted. We want that deeply. That's something in our broken natures that craves this. And while it craves the affection of man, it also creates in us a fear of them, fear of their rejection, fear of their opinions, Love God enough to abandon inferior loves. To love Him and say, God, even if this should put me at odds, even if this should cause me to be rejected, even if this should cause those people that I do love to loathe me, to see me as a plague, may I love you most. Most. Take pains. The third thing I would say is this. Be ready. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Because you don't know when those opportunities are going to come. You don't know the who, you don't know the when, and you don't know the where. And let me say something about opportunity for a moment, okay? Because I want to make sure this comes all the way down to where we are. This, this hits home for all of us. If you guys have a younger generation over here to my left, you think of the future of your life and the opportunities that you want, the things you want to do and things you want to accomplish. Let me tell you where opportunity comes from. Opportunity is the fruit of faithfulness. You don't go overnight to standing in front of Caesar. You don't go overnight to making your case before the king. That's the result of many decisions of faithfulness. And opportunities are right here all around us. And if you're not faithful in the little ones, in the day-to-day -day ones, why should you think God will ever give you great ones? I mean, if, if, if I'm not going to be courageous enough to be identified with Christ in front of the people I work with or live with or related to or go to school with? How is God ever going to use me for something much greater? I'm not going to stand before governors and kings if I won't stand up for my, with my own family or my own co-workers or my own classmates. It, it starts there. I think sometimes we, we put off what, what God's going to do in our life for some future tense. You know, one day I want to do this. You know, one day I'm going to serve God. One, one day when I get older, or one day when I get more education, or one day when I have more resources, 
or, or one day when I have more opportunity. But the one day is today. It's right now. And what God wants for us, to all of you who wonder how God's going to use your life in the state that you're in right now, what does God want? He wants faithfulness right where you are. He wants the opportunities right in front of you. Those opportunities aren't in a far-off place or a far-away future. God's pleasure in your life is available to you right now. And the opportunities in front of you. Isn't that what Jesus taught, by the way? He gave the parable of talents. Talents not being abilities, but resources. Some were given ten and five and one, but what does he require of his servants? Faithfulness. Opportunities in front of you right here, right now. I don't want you to look at Paul's life and say, man, one day, one day I'm going to do something awesome for God. One day I'm going to do something great. One day I'm going to do something meaningful. One day I'm going to do something that matters. That starts now. It starts right now. Will I be faithful to God with what's in front of me right now? The opportunity in front of me right now. The people around me right now. This state in life right now, remembering it is by God's sovereign hand. I'm not simply drifting down the stream, even, even God's stream, like a, like a leaf in a current. No, God's providing things for me to do right here, right now. Be ready today. And also look at Paul's life, and this relates to the earlier point. When you're falsely accused by man, which Paul was again and again, you see that, right? I'm going to have to hound that point. Over and over, they're saying things that don't hold up. They don't bear true. Make sure you can be exonerated by God. Make sure when the world says this, you know, Jesus talked about this, about the persecution we're going to face, even that the world will hate us as it hates him. But let's not be hated because we're worthy of hate or hateful. Let's make sure that if the world says you're guilty, if the world says you're, you're the bad guy now, if the world says you're bigoted or you're narrow-minded or you're whatever it may be, make sure that God exonerates. Am I right before him? And finally, I would say find hope and courage in the sovereignty of God. Find hope and courage in this. It's easy with backward glance to say, man, how did I end up here? This is not quite what I had planned. It's not, not where I intended to be. But you and I need to have hope in the sovereignty of God that God's doing something here. And maybe by his grace, it's not what it was going to be, or it's a different thing now altogether, but God has something for us right in front of us. This is, as I wrote for you in your notes, immeasurably practical theology. I want to make sure that when you hear this thought of sovereignty, you don't just write that off as just some sort of philosophical concept. God's rule and reign in the earth for his good purposes, but you see it in practical ways. I owe much of these thoughts to just a powerful article I read called Faithfulness in Forgotten Places by Scott Hubbard. And using the scriptures, we see again and again how God works in our lives. You know, surely our plans and efforts are significant. But Hubbard writes, his plans are decisive. Ours are significant, but his are decisive even over the most personal matters. How is God decisive in your life? God determines when and where you live. Why, why here? Why right now? Why the family you're in? Why the year? Why this? 
Acts 17, 26 says, He made from one man, every nation of mankind, to live all, over all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. God allotted where you would be and when you would be there. And if you belong to Him as a Christian, doesn't that speak to your essential role as an ambassador of Christ? He wanted you there. He wanted you there now. Here and now. God also assigns to us a measure of, of faith, the Scriptures say. We're not all exactly the same in this regard. Romans 12, 3 says, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. We won't all do the exact same things. We won't all be like the Apostle Paul, but we can all be like the Apostle Paul in faithfulness. He also gives us spiritual gifts as he wills. He apportions them according to 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And Paul goes to great pains in 1 Corinthians to write that it's not the gift that gives you value, it's the gift giver. God wants you to use the gifts for the service of his purposes, for the service of his people. And he gives them as he wills. God entrusts to us a number of talents, as I said, whether 5, 2, 1, Matthew 25, verse 15. God gives us a specific ministry. Colossians 4, 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I don't have to do someone else's ministry or be someone else, but I have to be what God made me to be. He's given me something. God even calls us to a particular life. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called to him. So when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, maybe it's not so that we would all become the Apostle Paul, but that we'd be faithful and courageous, loving and persistent, persevering, bold in our witness. In time, this place that you're in may give way to somewhere different. Depending on the circumstances, we may be wise to seek that change, he says. But for now, we can look at the responsibilities and the opportunities in front of us and say with relief, my Father's hand has led me here. Can you do that? My Father's hand has led me here. Whether that's two years in prison, or standing before kings, or persecution, or whatever it may be, to know that God's hand has led you here, and His hand is strong. He's in control. And you and I, in every circumstance, can choose to be faithful. Be faithful. Listen, God knows where you are. He knows what He wants from you. You've got opportunities right in front of you. What are you going to do with what God has given to you? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and pray with me. Father, I pray for the youngest among us to catch a vision of faithfulness even now. Those that desire to be useful to you to your, to your mission and purpose, useful to your kingdom and church. Those who aspire for right motivations to do great things for you, God, I pray that they would learn the lesson now of, of faithfulness. An opportunity is born out of faithfulness. Lord, as you look at our lives and you give us things to be faithful in now,
if we are, we do what you want us to do with the opportunities that you've given us, you give us more. Father, for those who are tempted to have an if-then sort of thinking, if I have more money, I'll be more generous. If I have more time, I would offer more service. If I had more, more training, I, I would speak up more. If, if I was a bit older, or a bit wiser, or if I had a better position, or more influence, I, I would if. Father, if we're, if we're not now, we won't then. I pray we'd come to grips with that. Father, I, I pray also we would have a peace about us. Father, rescue us from longing of what could be, what might have been, and replace us, replace that with a, what would you have me do right now, Lord? Right here, right now, where I am, with the people around me, with opportunities, whatever they may be, what would you have me do right now? Father, rescue us from that unfruitful looking back, that unhealthy wishing for something unmet as to yet undone. Father, help us to be fruitful right now, right here where we are. Lord, I lift up our students today. We've been encountering you and your word. Lord, I pray that they will choose faithfulness. Lord, I, I, want, I want to have a clear conscience before you. I want to live life before you. That life before your eyes, Father, I pray that would be their aim. And Lord, I pray the same for each of us, whatever stage or age. For those of us who do little to nothing because we can't do more, God, forgive us for that. Find us faithful. Lord, in all these things. Lord, thank you for being faithful to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.